Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to another episode of the Insider Outsider podcast. In um, this episode, I'm honored to have Rihanna Moore, who is uh, one of our consultants at uh, WMFDP, FDP Global. Also, you have been uh, traveling this whole DEI work journey for many, many years um, in many different organizations. And Rihanna, maybe maybe you just want to start by sharing a little bit of your background or what you want folks to know about um, your career or your work or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some of your magic is, which I'll point out later too, if you have it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good to be with you, Michael. And thank you for inviting me to do this. Um, I guess when I, uh, you know, when someone asks me why I got involved in this work or what, what my passion is about and all of that, I really go back to an awareness that I had as a child and a really young child of social inequities. And certainly I didn't have that language back then, but I can remember my family, um, my my parents were both second generation immigrants, European immigrants. And um, the dream in the family back in Germany was to come to the United States and become property owners. They had my ancestors had worked for uh, as part of the feudal system in, in Germany, at, at least on my dad's side. On my mom's side, there's kind of a different story. But the class story was always big in us. And so my grandparents migra- uh, migrated here from Germany, um, independent of each other, and then met here and got married and so forth. So... So there's always, I've always had this kind of um, class consciousness or awareness. Mm-hmm. My dad was a labor labor guy, uh, not a not an organizer, but involved with the union, steel workers union. Mm-hmm. And I grew up on a farm. So it's just kind of this working class consciousness. And I remember being like really young, four-ish, and noticing that the men in the park who, we, who were dressed shabbily were treated shabbily by other people who would avoid them and make a wide berth around them. And I, I wondered why that was. And then early in high school, I started reading about, uh, well, I read Viktor Frankl first, you know, man's inhumanity to man. And then I started learning about, because I wanted to, I started learning and reading about things like the Spanish inquisition and the persecution of women uh, as witches. And of course, um, the North Atlantic slave trade and what the U.S. government did to um, American Indian tribes and all of that. It just always, I don't want want to say it was fascinating. It was kind of fascinating, but it was more that it was compelling to me and I didn't understand it. And I knew that it was, those kinds of things were just like really 
um, horrific and criminal. Um, and so I, I've always just had that orientation. So um, I started out. I started out as, a, as an educator at the college level, and then discovered organization development. And what appealed to me about that was the principles of participation and giving a voice to the people who were going to be impacted by decisions that were being made in organizations. That, that was like the original sense of inclusion. You know, what is it? Um, inclusion is a set of behaviors and what do we need to do in order to be inclusive? And there really, there's like a set of skills and behaviors around that. So um, OD appealed to me and this was a long time ago now. Um, I, I got a job in a corporation which has since got out of gone out of yeah. business, but um, started doing organization development, and then from that stepped into doing diversity work, mm-hmm. originally around gender and um, gender equity and that kind of thing yeah. in the corporate world. Well, I, I appreciate this and hearing this. I mean, your personal exploration around inequality, and and then having an OD background in organizational development means you look at systems, you think from mm-hmm. a systems perspective, mm-hmm. which I think is a really informed place to do work from DEI. You, uh, I've watched you facilitate, you point out to leaders, you know, pay attention to the individual lens here, pay also the, action, the group dynamic, the uh, um, sort of the organizational dynamic and even societal level. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. So, like, like the large system level. Yeah. Um, one of the ways I think in which I, I experience myself is a little different from a lot of people who are who think of themselves as system thinkers and practitioners and so forth. Is that um, my sense is that they lose sight of the individual. So mm. for me, it's a both and. You know. Yeah. So what I might say to a leader is all of what you just said, Michael, and then consider the impact on the individual of how the system is structured mm-hmm. and, and also the informal systems, the informal cultures that are in place mm-hmm. in the system and how that's impacting people and, and their sense of belonging and um, um, how that, how that impact, impacts their willingness and ability to perform at the you know, the, the best that they're capable of. Mm-hmm. So it's both and it's both and in my yep. mind, it's not individual or system. It's like both together and all of the levels in between, like you just said. Yeah. And I was just, just reading another book, intentional revolutions, uh, an old book from Ed Nevis. Yeah. A couple nights ago. Mm. Like, yeah. People either approach things thinking you got to change the individual and mm-hmm. ignore the system and which mm-hmm. the individual goes back and gets sucked back into the same system and the old behaviors, or they deal with changing the organization and ignoring individual change and the transformation that has to happen inside. So mm-hmm. holding both of those up together as yeah. as leaders and organizations, it shows how complex this whole process is of changing through DEI. You've got to help individuals along their journey and do that in a way that they build commitment and care versus compliance and performance and yeah and then work with how they interact with the system and how they get the system to realign around equity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. yeah and um yeah i like the way you put that and 
in the first part of what you were saying, I was thinking there's that binary mindset again, you know, it's, it's one or the other. And I like what you're saying, which is it's both and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both and. It's, yeah. Yeah. And to say even more, it's like, it's an individual and it's about how do individuals interact with each other. And so partnership as well as team dynamics, as well as organizational dynamics. And I was thinking about, you know, you and I facilitated a lab, a four day session, what a month ago or so. And, you know, we had people crossed racially paired up after some fish bowls. And one of the things you asked was, you know, for the white folks to be conscious, uh, you know, and the folks of color, how many folks of color spent some time um, comforting the white folks, mm-hmm. helping to extend care to them, which is a something they've often been socialized to. And and um, white folks, how much do you expect that? So I just like the way that you were uh, inviting them to notice a pattern that mm-hmm. Um, whether conscious or unconscious, that it can be interrupted. Um, do, do you think that brought some awareness, some consciousness, conscious awareness to at least some of the people in the room about that particular pattern around comfort, white people's comfort, expectation of comfort, I should say? I do, you know, and 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 that it certainly plays out in our society right now a lot around people you know, all worried about um, white folks feeling discomfort, mm-hmm. well, I, you know, and, and to to look into races for me to have to build my capacity for discomfort on absolutely edge and not look for others to um, calm, calm or almost like take a white cultural lens and say, let's take the emotion out of this. Don't accuse yeah. me of anything or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't want to be accused of anything. And, feel guilty or anything like that. And that's not what nobody's intent usually, but I got to create more space for people to just share their lived experiences and rawness of what's what they're experiencing. Yes. If they're willing to, if they feel safe enough to do that. And if, if people of color don't see you and me uh, being willing to acknowledge our, our whiteness and the fact the reality that uh, yeah. white culture, white culture exists, and there's a an intergroup level relationship that goes on between white people and people of color that has very very old roots. Yeah, um, and that that awareness tends to make white people like us uncomfortable, at least initially. And if they don't see us being willing being willing to tolerate our discomfort or if they see us moving to backlash you know we're gonna uh we're gonna punish you somehow for making us uncomfortable um they're certainly not going to trust us any further because what we're doing just reinforces that insider outsider dynamic Mm -hmm. so we might say you know do we have issues here and they might say no Based mm-hmm. on how you're framing the whole thing, I, I wouldn't dare say what my experience really is. And then mm-hmm. you're like, well, see, we, we're fine. Um, yeah. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. But, because we because at the group level, we set it up that way. Not you and me personally, individually, mm-hmm. but we certainly, you know, un, until each of us, I'm, I'll go out on a little bit of a limb because I think you probably had a, a moment similar to mine at some point where you realized you were white and yeah. that that meant 
that meant something. But up until that moment, we were just um, unconscious parts of the system in a way, uh, the way that a lot or maybe most other white people are. Yeah. And, and then there's how people, white people are responding in this moment when um, the racial inequities in this country are really just um, in our face collectively. Mm-hmm. In our in our face. Yep. Yeah. And there we are face to face with mm-hmm. a lot of possibility for connection and partnership or a lot of possibility for disconnection and polarization. And um, yeah, what, what? There's there's a lot of individual white people who will say some version of something that I heard just a few days ago in a session I was in uh, where um, a certain group of people w- were having an outsider experience because they had been prevented from having access to information that actually impacted their experience in what was going on. And so these particular uh, outsiders were uh, charged up about that and confronted the leadership. And the leadership's response was, we've prevented you from having access because we we thought it was for your own good and you just need to trust us, which is a classic insider response to an outsider outcry <laughs> and mm-hmm. and the outsiders were like I don't think so you know I, I'm not going to trust you mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. because you say so I mean that's pater- that's paternalism yeah that's yeah. paternalism and you know we're all grown-ups and we want to be treated like adults mm-hmm. well you you um been working on this for a long time particularly race piece you said you started with gender yeah and at some point you know you wrote a book with uh, rick huntley and carol pierce called journeys of race color and culture from racial inequity to inclusion and equity and inclusion and um it's there's a lot of gold in this book well, thank you yeah and um and some cool visuals too a, a map a continuum um, so what, what do you want to share about that or some of the essence or what kind of drove that from hap- to happen in your journey? The continuum existed first and mm-hmm. the uh, journeys of race, color and culture, it existed first and it existed as a, uh, an instructional aid, I guess is the way I would put it. It, it. it existed, it was published and it existed as a 10 foot by four foot wall chart. You know, it's huge. It still exists like that. And I can talk a little bit about how it came about, how the model was created and so forth, because I think that's Mm -hmm. useful information, context for people to have. But um, uh, we created it. We certainly used it in our own consulting practice and other consultants and university professors who came to public labs that we had conducted back in the 80s and 90s really liked it. And so they purchased, you know, like professors, uh, so professors of like social change courses and um, the sociology of, of oppression and, and things like that. They would use it in their classrooms and different ones of them and corporate consultants were saying, could you please write the book? You know, yeah. <laughs> and we're saying that for years. Could you please write the book? 
So we would have more language and more context to to talk about this yeah. chart. They love the chart, but as you know, Michael, from seeing it, that um, there's like sketchy um, phrasing so that all of this information can fit on this chart. So in the book, the book is about the chart and it's really just an expanded uh, version of everything that's on the chart. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, and originally it existed as a black-white continuum. And then uh, during the 80s and early 90s, we wrote 1980s, 1990s, um, we were getting feedback from people of color who who don't identify as black. but they were saying, you know, we we're still having this is this represents our experience in white culture. And so we we expanded it to be more, more inclusive of all people of color. And let me just say that we um, we myself and my co-authors, we don't see people of color as any kind of monolithic group. Yeah, um, there's no there really is no monolithic social group. But what all people of color have in common in the U.S. anyway, and I think around the world really, is an experience of white dominant culture, mm-hmm. or even you could say white supremacy, mm-hmm. and the way that white dominant culture uh, oppresses cultures, people and cultures of color in different ways. Now, I know as soon as I say that, I can hear all the white people I've worked with over the years objecting to that, you know as individuals, they'll say, I haven't oppressed anyone. And that's one of the things we do, of course, as, as white people, as you and I both know, and we teach this in our, in our, um, our labs, WMFDP labs, that that whole thing around the individual, uh, it's a way that we have as white people of defending against the idea that it was people in our social identity group who Mm -hmm. uh, created the system, you know, and, and, keep things in place to perpetuate it, yeah. you know, like, like the voter registration uh, things that are going on right now and redistricting and redlining and all those practices that are still going on. And we might say, well, I personally haven't done that. Therefore I'm not guilty. And you and I have a different message around that, which is uh, maybe we're not guilty personally, but once we know about the system and, and its impacts on people of color collectively, then how can we use our systemic advantage as white people to to interrupt um, those patterns? Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. a lot of what we're about. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know if I wandered too far off um, the no, question I, that you asked or not. I think the I don't remember my question actually, but I'm <laughs> intrigued with you know when you mentioned the culture, we talk about the dominant culture in many ways in the U.S. and it's different a little bit around the world, but, you know, and some aspects of it have created success. You know, some of the rugged individualism, the action-oriented, the tenacity and stuff have mm-hmm. created um, some good engineering feats, a lot of infrastructure and things. And we always say an over a strength overused can become a weakness. And And also, you know, if I just say I treat everybody the same, um, they look at the culture and say, yeah, I got to fit into your culture. And then you'll try to maybe you'll treat me the same. So this energy that has what is everybody fitting into? What's the culture, the water that they have to learn to swim in in order to be seen as competent or valued? And, you know, 
that I imagine that's connected to some of what you're talking about around seeing the water in the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but should I say a little bit about where the data that uh, sure. the pieces that are on the continuum chart, where they yeah. came from? The poster yeah. chart. Yep. Mm -hmm. So the original continuum, the, the 10, 10 foot by four foot wall chart was on gender, male, female right. dynamics, men and women. Mm -hmm pretty binary because we weren't thinking in non-binary ways back mm -hmm. in the 80s yep. and the 70s when the male-female continuum was first created. Mm -hmm. So um, that looked at the system between women and men and how, how that played out. And um, where all those data came from was um, Carol Pierce, one of my co-authors and her colleagues at the time yep. were working in corporate America dealing with gender issues because that was like um, the first thing that was being presented. And as they worked with groups of women and men and got them talking to each other as, uh, at, uh, as pairs across uh, gender or uh, sex difference, um, that the, the idea for this continuum started to emerge and um, they took it out in, in, kind of rudimentary form and presented it to people. And then they listened to people's experience of it and got more data and just kept developing it, developing it, developing it. And then roughly the same process was used when the, when the continuum on race, color, and culture started to emerge. There was uh, an African-American man at the time named, um, uh, and his name is escaping me now, which is terrible. We'll probably come um, back. Yeah, it might come back. But he was really key in the firm. I wasn't part of the firm at the time. I heard this history uh, before I joined. Uh, and the uh, Carol and others wanted him to do work around gender. And he said, I'll do work around gender if you do work around race. <laughs> and that's, oh, Richard Orange. Like a lot of people yeah. in the OD field and diversity, equity, inclusion field, either knew Richie Orange or or knew of him. He was really a seminal figure in the 70s and 80s. Right. I remember that. Yeah. So, um, so that was the seed for the development of the continuum on journeys of race, color, and culture. And they would take this, um, the rudimentary version of the chart, black, white, again, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier and present it to workshop groups and um, mixed race groups. And so uh, groups of um, people of color and white people would say, here's what makes sense for me, but I think you're missing a piece and they would add something. And yep. it just sort of got built over time. But really the point of all of that little story is the data that are on this chart came from people themselves including groups of people of color and white people, mixed race groups. So it's anchored in actual life experience. Mm -hmm. uh, an academician would call this either phenomenology or grounded theory, yep. you know, for people who are out there who, who live yep. at least part-time in that world, in that space. I think of it as phenomenology, that mm -hmm. it, is a, it is a study, it's a map of a certain phenomenon that occurs in the culture. And I believe its power 
um, lies in the fact that it enables people, it gives people language for having conversations about their own experience in their racial identity group and to have conversations across what's been called the racial divide in this country. Mm-hmm. So, so it helps people deal with their, especially white people, deal with their terror uh, of talking about race. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you agree with me that a lot of white people are just really afraid of even having the conversation because they don't know how and and we're probably socialized not to talk about it? You know, be polite. Don't don't talk right. about it. Or they see somebody talking about it, making a mistake and then um, paying a heavy price or fear. Yeah. Of, and they they're more interested in being safe than to making a mistake and learning. Um Unfortunately. Yeah, and they're and they're mistaking safety and comfort. That's one of the things I like to say. I can't. I think I've said it in some of our labs, Michael. Where um, you know, let's differentiate, especially as white people, between safety and comfort. If you start to feel yeah. unsafe, ask yourself: Are you really unsafe? You know, is something about to happen to you, or are you just more uncomfortable than you've been mm-hmm. in a long time, or than you like to be? You know, well, and can you tolerate being? uncomfortable. And actually, there's a place on the continuum. It's way into the middle section, which we call the transition, because it's all about learning about these patterns of culture Mm -hmm. that you and Mm -hmm. I are talking about. And um, it's kind of midway through the, the transition section, which is in blue. And it says tolerate discomfort and ambiguity and allow emotions to be engaged. You know, this is, this is a big developmental step for white people to get into because we've been so yeah. schooled out especially men out of out of their emotional experience you know the birthright yep. i and one of our eight critical leadership skills is leveraging ambiguity and turbulence and yeah integrating head and heart also getting used integrating to integrating head and heart yeah i remember uh remember interviewing a white male um we're talking to one guy and we were talking about the skill of leveraging ambiguity and turbulence and um he literally said in my head he's like what's ambiguity (laughs) really (laughs) he was he never thought (laughs) you know he's trained to think it's either this or it's this it's black or white there is no binary binary thinking yeah yeah the other thing i see early on in your chart on the top for white folks is a concept that emotions cloud reason Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times, some cultures, emotion signify truth. In Anglo culture, emotion, the absence of emotion signifies truth and the assumption that emotion gets in the way of truth. So yeah. Yeah, seeing that by, you know, the the binary notion of that, you're either emotional or rational. You can't be both. It's like that gets in the way of a lot of um, conversations about race and the ability to have the messy conversation with others. So yeah, I can see how tolerating ambiguity and emotions engaged is a, is a step through that artificial binary and to mm-hmm. have space for both yep. emotions as a source of wisdom, emotions as a source of data. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Emotions, emotions as data, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. And, and, and also knowing at an individual level, if I have an interaction with a colleague of color and they're frustrated or angry, it may not be from the 10 minutes of interaction I had with them. 
it might be from the last 20 years or 20 hours of stuff mm-hmm. they're dealing with before they meet me. And I just look at, you know, the interaction I've had, I want to want as an individual saying, I'm not aware of all the paper cuts they've been dealing with before mm-hmm. where that they're also part of their ex- experience and frustration. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because they're having they're having an individual level experience like each of us is, but they're also having a group level experience all the time. Mm. And one of the big features of white culture is this individualism, you know, that I can sail along as an individual and see, see myself as a good white person. I'm not one of those avowed active white supremacist types. And so I kind of forgive and excuse myself. I don't identify as white. If I identify as white, then I say, okay, I'm a member of that group. I actually have group membership. And then that opens up a whole, um, a whole kettle of fish, would you say? Barrel of pickles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I have to think about the implications of having this group membership and oh my goodness, what does that mean? And one of the things I think is so powerful in our work, and it's it's on the continuum and it's in the book, that 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 was so helpful for me to realize as an individual, you know, was was when I understood that in terms of the social power dynamics, that um, the subordinated group, the culturally subordinated group or the insiders see, I mean outsiders, yep. um, see insiders as a group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you know, I want to, uh, I pay attention to history and um, I have a really strong value around giving attribution where, mm-hmm. um, where it's deserved and so forth. And these ideas go back to a book that was written by Jean Baker Miller, MD, back in the mid 1970s on um, uh, the role of women in culture. Uh, toward a new psychology of women. You, my guess is you've read that. It's kind of a classic. It came out in '76, and it was part of the of the uh, refocusing of the uh, second wave of feminism in the nineteen mm. in the nineteen seventies. And mm. her ideas go back to um, actually to um, Marx and Weber, Karl Marx and mm. and um, Max Weber. Um, mm. Because they they wrote about social stratification, which is what this is, you know, where one group decides that it wants to put another group to work on its behalf and build its buildings, build its infrastructure, Mm -hmm. um, and be like a free free source of labor or whatever. You know, it goes back to that kind of thing. So I just like to, it's like the the through line of, of this thinking, which does not make me a socialist. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? If anything, mean? I'm a capitalist. You know, I participate in the system. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What else do you want folks, leaders, to know about the model, the continuum, and how it might inform how they lead or how they partner? Uh-huh. Yeah, great question. And I'd, I'd like to talk about uh, leaders in um, separate racial groups. Uh-huh. Uh, people of color leaders and um, white people who are leaders. And I'll talk about white people first because I am one. Mm-hmm. I, I think a key thing for people who 
who are seen as members of the white racial identity group, however they may see themselves. And again, little sidebar, you know, often, I've so often had the experience of white people, people who walk in the world as white people and get the systemic advantage that is accorded to white people because of the way the system is set up, but don't want to identify as white and will say, I'm not white, I'm Italian, I'm Jewish, I'm, you know, whatever. Um, so it, it's both about, not only about how we see ourselves, but but how we are seen in the world and how we get to walk through the world. So given that definition, white people, so leaders who are white people, um, it, it's helpful to us to understand the systemic uh, power dynamics, um, the history around that, and, um, and how they function in the contemporary moment in our own organizations in terms of how people show up so as a, a white leader, if I'm not aware, just as an example, a small example, but very, very impactful. If I'm not aware that one of the common dynamics is in a mixed race team, that a person of color will offer an idea and not have it acknowledged or responded to in any way. And then five or 10 or 15 minutes later, another member of the team who is white says the very, very same thing, even using the same language and gets recognized, acknowledged and appreciated for their contribution. So that's, that's a pattern that occurs over and over and over again. It's not just an isolated incident. So I'm just using that as an example to say that it's helpful for white leaders to become more and more and more aware of these kinds of patterns that do occur and um, continuously, it's like you said, the paper cuts, you know, every, every time one of those happens to a person of color, it is um, discouraging. It discourages them. It makes them cynical. Um, and, and they have to, uh, I'm kind of making up a story now because I'm not a person of color, but I've had this experience on both ends of it. Um, it makes them work, have to work extra hard to overcome the psychological impacts of uh, not being recognized in those ways. And then there's real effects when um, uh, performance management, you know, when, when the annual cycle comes around and their performance needs to be reviewed and who gets how many stock options and <laughs> who, mm -hmm. who gets the 5% raise versus the 3.5% raise, you know, whatever. I'm just pulling numbers out of the air. Yeah. Um, but th those kinds of uh, patterns, they're, they're not just like socially harmful or, or hurtful for people. And I differentiate between hurt and harm, by the way. Um, um, but they, they have a lasting impact on a person and their family, their children. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's like this, all of this extra emotional labor that people of color have to do in order to just keep showing up every day. A another constant pattern is, and people of color report this over and over and over again, and they say, I know it's not such a big deal, and they kind of, you know, try to minimize it, and they say, I don't want to sound like I'm whining, but nobody ever makes eye contact with me. 
you know, when we pass each other in the corridors. And I see people, white people, acknowledging each other, you know, saying a, like a, a, a key word or something and everybody laughs and, and then they pass and there's there's that kind of acknowledgement. I see you. I know you're there. And um, for me as a person of color now, I've heard pers- people of color say this, I, I don't get even eye contact. And it's like I, I start to feel invisible. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. Uh, is it Ray Ellison and uh, the Invisible Man from years and years and years ago? So, so I'm talking about impacts on individuals uh, because of the social power dynamics that have been in place for hundreds of years in this country and other places around the world, where whiteness is preferred, um, but at a at a subconscious level, an unconscious level but having very real impacts on real people's lives and so forth. So for, for white leaders, I think it's important to be aware of those patterns as much as possible. We write about that in the book. Um, And, and so that's one piece. And then another piece is to take a really um, well, another piece is certainly around looking at themselves as individuals and understanding what their own uh, implicit biases that they that they have as a result of being socialized as white in a white dominant culture. So that's the second piece. And then the third one, I think, is um, taking a, a good, uh, intelligent, critical look at the system that they're part of, their organization, mm-hmm. and 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 seeing how who who does the system benefit? What are the ways in which the system mm-hmm. is set up? and maintained to um, to offer advantage to people with white skin or you know lighter skin. We often talk about white privilege, but I like the language that we've come up with in uh, WMFDP, and maybe other people are using it as well. You know, it's it's not that we think that white people have not worked hard to be where they are, especially as leaders, you know, more senior, yeah. but rather that um, we call it systemic advantage because it's the system is set up in such a way that we don't have to think about certain things. Uh, we can just focus on, you know, the job and whatever that is, but we're not dealing with all this social stuff that's in the, that's in the water too, you know, cause it doesn't affect us. Yeah. I think about some of the conversations I've heard in a lot of different folks of color talking about even gathering in a group in the hallway informally. Mm-hmm. It's a strongest yes. for, for black folks who in the South, it was illegal to have a gathering of what more than four or something. So there's this suspicion that develops that is very mm-hmm. obvious or subtle um, that, you know, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to add to that gathering and suspectness. So I won't even be part of a group if there's already three people there, I'll just keep walking by. Um, I don't think about that in terms of how many white people I stand next to in the hallway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stuff. So the not having to be conscious about dynamics and how I'm perceived, um, not having to be thought about as, oh, I, he may have gotten that job because of, uh, of his race. You know, it's like having the obliviousness to not have to just be able to be my individual self. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I start to understand that others are living such a different reality where they're having to track and be curious, is this happening because of this? Is this happening because of that? It's like, yeah. 
Yeah, so, that's like so. they've always they've always as I understand it, they've always got that uh, channel going. The channel's always mm-hmm. open. You know, one of the pieces on the continuum, and again, this came from people of color. Uh, it's the bottom line. If you happen to be looking at it, Michael, yep. um, it, it extends across the whole continuum at the bottom under the people of color journey line. And the name of it is uh, bicultural slash multicultural mm-hmm. that a person of color in uh, white dominant culture is uh, de facto bicultural has to be at least bicultural Yeah, in, in order to in order to survive and mm-hmm. in the organizational context succeed at some level, at some level, they have to, they have to be, they have to know how to navigate white culture. Yep. Yeah. And, and yet get, um, may pay a price for not doing that or not being aware of it. Yep. And, um, so more aware of the culture where if I never leave white culture as a white person, I don't even have an awareness of it. I just think it's being a good human. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, and it's just, it's, yeah. it's just the way it is, you know, it's just how we do things here. You know, those kind of normalistic norm, normalizing right. ways of perpetuating the existing culture rather than taking a critical look at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So what, where, where does the, folks of colors continuum move from as they move across you talked about the white folks transitions along the continuum to become aware of our culture become aware of our group identity to start noticing the patterns at a group level um what's the evolution for colleagues of color well i i think the big thing for people of color is i've listened to many, many, many people of color over the years describe their experience. Um, the critical moment is um, when they come to uh, conscious awareness. Oh, well, they have a lot of, and I know I'm speaking in generalizations now, so I, I hope I'm not going to like offend anyone. Um, so this is my experience. And as I've listened, um, there comes a moment for a lot of people of color when uh, they just don't want to play the game any longer. And one of the ways in corporate America that that gets expressed and is being expressed very powerfully, you and I have heard this many times over the last few years, is uh, people of color who, who say to white people, you know, I'm not going to teach you about this stuff. That's not my jam. You know, it's not my job. Um, I'm willing to kind of have a conversation with you at some point, but I'm not going to teach you the basics. You need to go and do that on your own. And of course, white people are a lot of a lot of us are at a loss. But what do you mean? You know, I'm I'm asking I'm asking you for help like it's a compliment, you know, Um, looking for that for comfort from folks of color work but to educate us teach us be the ones that prove that we've got blind spots and you know Mm -hmm. and then and then tell me that you know i'm an okay white person you know like praise me for having uh an insight or a a, a desire to yeah 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 and and so developmentally I, i i see people of color as a group reaching that point where they say wait a minute why should I have to do, um, I shouldn't have to do 
white people's emotional labor for them. Yeah. Um, and that, and they, so they will um, put on the brakes around that and refuse. And which in terms of the continuum chart, uh, it means that developmentally they've moved out, you know, of um, uh, their collusion around maintaining white, white supremacy, basically. Mm-hmm. They're no longer colluding. And then um, if they if there's a white person who is in relationship with that particular person of color, and it's an important relationship, it could be a family member, it could be someone uh, in their place of worship, it could be someone at work, you know, who, who says, and not even angrily, just says, no, you know, I'm not going to teach you about that, but here's how you can, you know, talk to some other white people and, and you can get on your own journey, but I, I, I just don't have the bandwidth to help you with that. That's a shock for white people. And it's that shift in the power dynamic that gets most white people on their own journey. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my gosh, something's shifting here. Yeah. You know, something's going on that I don't understand because it's so different from what I've been socialized to expect and how things have always been. What do you mean you don't want to help me? You don't, you know, I'm like complimenting you by coming to you for help, you know, by saying your history and your biography is now all of a sudden really important to me. And I want you to teach me, you know. Yeah. And that's, that's the importance of places for white folks to go or, in, you know, and for white men in our company, other places for us to do our own learning and mm-hmm. challenge each other without the burden each other. of others and, to, to discover how much more we can help carry that torch and also see how we're not just helping others with their issues. This massively liberates us and benefits us as well. And so <clears throat> I noticed that <clears throat> part of your continuum, a lot of it is leads through a path of doing the work to mm-hmm. being the work, what you call being the work in the final yeah. part of the where you have equity and inclusion as part of a circle. So what, what's that shift from doing to being about for you? And, and moving into the being doesn't mean that we stop doing the doing. So we're actually, uh, we're working on revising the continuum because this version now is about five years old. So uh, okay. um, I, I, I'm thinking that, um, that we need to have something in that that loop at the end, it's about equity and inclusion that, uh, that says um, continue the doing and also being, being the work. So yeah. the, I, I, can't, I can't be the work unless I've done my work. I've really done my work. And the middle section there is all about the doing. So it's all behaviors. It's all behavior and their impact and so forth along with some attitude stuff, like building my tolerance for discomfort and and ambiguity, like we were talking about earlier. Um, So so there's a lot of doing that's going on. And a lot of the doing is about learning in that middle thing. So if we've really really done our work up to a certain point, and, um, and that can, you know, for me, it's been years and I'll continue focusing on the doing, of course. But then there's there's a point at which we, we uh, internalize enough of a newer way of being in relationship with, um, at the intergroup level, 
with people of color as different groups, um, that I've begun to internalize that. And there's ways in which I have shifted into a place um, where I can, I can, in the quality of my presence, show up in a way that uh, people of color who have enough exposure to me or to you, Michael, or other white people who've been in this work, where they get a different sense of uh, the kind of white person that we are, because there's a way in which we have of just a being, whatever it is. So there's different ways of typifying that. Uh, going back to discomfort and ambiguity, you can see uh, around the bottom of, of the green loop there, um, discomfort and ambiguity are the norm. So I'm just taking for granted, like I'm in a, I'm in a situation where I'm in conversation with a person of color and I'm un uncomfortable um, for all the reasons that I as a white person am going to be uncomfortable because of our respective socialization. Um, and the person of color can see that I'm tolerating my own discomfort rather than making them the source of it. Yeah. It's just so it's like it's like in the quality of my being. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm feeling like I'm sounding like arrogant or something. I'm always concerned. No, I, about I'm that. just sitting. I'm sitting with that. Like, I don't blame others for my discomfort. I own it mm -hmm. as part of my journey and part of my worry about making mistakes. Um, I've created my own sort of angst by mm -hmm. variety of different tensions. and. Um, yeah. And what we what we do with that, see, this is now back to a little bit of doing um, what we can do that that signals that to our people of color colleagues, mm -hmm. uh, family members and so on is um, is by saying, I'm really uncomfortable right now about what's going on. I'm just noticing a level of discomfort in myself, yeah. but I want to stay yeah. in this. I don't want to run away. So if you'll bear with me, mm -hmm. you know, and in my experience people of color who are my colleagues who I work with closely, like my colleague Rick, for example, Rick Huntley, and others um, appreciate my vulnerability and my, my willingness to mm -hmm. own that experience and not put it on them. Yeah. You know, and if I can further say uh, I'm aware it's because I'm white and how I was socialized and my socialization just didn't prepare me, you know, to, right. to be, uh, in these conversations, but I know it's really important to yeah. stay in it. So if you'll bear with me, you know, that there's an appreciation for that, for the vulnerability. Yeah. So that's a, and that's being, that's being stuff, you know, how yeah. we show up in, in social space. Yeah. We've yeah. been talking for about 50 minutes and I, I want to make sure we have a little bit of time to just talk more about what equity is, you know, and mm -hmm. how is that contrast or complementary to inclusion? You know, we used to be diversity. This is all about diversity. Then it's diversity and inclusion. Now it's diversity mm -hmm. equity and inclusion. And there's a cumulative synergy between those two. What would you want to share about what equity means to you and mm -hmm. how, how leaders might think about it? Yeah, it, it's tricky because leaders tend to be, you know, the leaders we work with typically tend to be leaders and senior level managers in corporate environments where there is a hierarchy, you know, the, the roles are distributed in a hierarchical way. And so the higher 
quote unquote, the higher one is in the hierarchy, then, then the greater their span of responsibility, the more people there are in their organizations who report upward to them. Those are very real power dynamics. Yeah. And so um, how do we create a, a social kind of equity in the midst of the hierarchical um, realities mm. that we have to, you know, it's like a both hand and how do leaders navigate that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's huge and it's tricky. It's tricky for people because clearly, you know, people are not going to obliterate the hierarchy. The hierarchy is there for a reason. And some of them are more rational than others. You know, it's part of what we do in, in organization development is how people look at is, is the current distribution of roles and responsibilities, does it make sense anymore like it did eight years ago, the last time we configured or, you know, whenever it yeah, was. Right. <laughs> but there's got to be uh, some sort of hierarchy. And so the way I think about equity is in a, in a, a social sense inside an organization where um, all human beings are seen as, uh, as having equal access to um, the rights and privileges within that organization, irrespective of, of whatever their level and role are in, in the context of the hierarchy. So um, what, that, what that implies or suggests is that um, often there are different types of adjustments that need to be made. I'm avoiding using the word accommodation because it, 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 it's one of those terms that's been politicized, I think, since the 70s. Mm -hmm. But it's like we, we make adjustments for one another in order for um, everyone to be able to contribute the best they can contribute, um, whatever they're given. Yeah. Adjustments as um, not everybody needs to be treated the same or receive the exact same resources. And what does that exactly? Yeah, what do you need to thrive? What do you need to flourish? And yeah. I mean, seeing differently, different folks, different places. And um, that's a mindset shift from yes. equality is treating everybody the same to equity yes. is treating different people differently in order for everybody to be able to thrive. Yes. That takes more complexity. It takes more um, messiness and the willingness to give up simplicity, I think, mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. well. Um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And, and to, um, yeah, not just shortcut. I can't really, um, do equity if I'm being colorblind, for example, or genderblind, because I have to see difference in order to accommodate how the impact of difference impacts whether people can flourish or not. I'm glad you said that it's such a great example because, um, think of the times that, that, white people in the groups we work with say, well, I try to be colorblind or I am colorblind and treat everybody the same. And there'll be one or two really brave persons of color who will say, you know, if you're not seeing my race and my color and my culture, then you're not seeing me, you know, it, I'm proud. I'm proud of um, yeah. My, yeah. My, my race and color. And that makes me, it, 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 it is who I am, you know, it's part of who I am. So and of course, we know from the science that very, very few people really have colorblindness as a physical condition. Every everyone literally uh, sees color, you mm -hmm. know, and sees facial features and all of that, you know, un unless we're vis 
visually impaired or, you know, we have something like that going on. Mm. So, yeah. And in fact, we have color blindness in the um, orange section on the continuum. It's, you know, that uh, there's, there's a lot of white folks who think the, the highest um, form of being equitable is to treat everyone the same. And like Mm -hmm. you're saying, Michael, that's not it. It's like Mm -hmm. finding out what, what's it going to take, you know, if um, I was going to say, if I was working for you, which I am kind of Uh (laughs) as the founder of the firm, and I'm one of the consultants, you know, you might say to me, um, Rihanna, now that you know our systems and our program designs and that kind of thing, what is it for you that, that you need in order to be successful here? You know, that's something that a leader can do to be equitable. I think of uh, diversity as just is. There's like a an existential reality to it. There's just like biodiversity. It just is. Inclusion is a set of behaviors that can be learned and practiced. How mm-hmm. how to lead and how to be inclusive. Mm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, you're talking a little bit of like servant leadership, really. What uh, me mm-hmm. saying? How can I serve you mm-hmm. as a consultant to thrive and do what you want to do here, um, as opposed to only you know you have to work up the hierarchy to satisfy me. Right, right, right. And of course, my side of that around responsibility is. I want to contribute to the firm and help it be successful because its mission is so aligned with, with my sense of purpose in this mm-hmm. life, which is why, yeah. why I've, I've liked so much um, being part of WMFDP, even though I'm not on staff, I'm not on salary. I have a different kind of relationship, right. but you all have behaved in ways that have not made me feel included and like I belong and I'm valued. So you know, mm-hmm. it, it's a both end. Again, it goes both ways. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think about as we come up on our hour here, I think about we're 25th year now of, you know, mm-hmm. starting mm-hmm. with white guys and working with everybody and particularly helping insiders see our insiderness. But how do we compel uh, leaders? to, you know, not just have awareness and build some skills, but really go back and make a difference, really go back and change their cultures. Uh, what what sort of helps? Um, what do you think we need to add or continue to do to make the cultures that their clients work in, our leaders, really be impacted? I'm going to pick a little bit at the word compel, which you used, which, of course, um, it, it, the the question is, can we and do we want to literally compel, you know, make people mm-hmm. do things? And yeah. you and I both, we can't we can't do that. We don't want to do that. So what are the things we can put in place that are going to hook into someone's intrinsic motivation so they feel impelled yeah. to, um, to yeah. shift their mindsets, to learn and mm-hmm. to do themselves differently as leaders and so forth? Yep. And, um, and that's like, what's in it for me? You know, why, why should I shift? Why should I change? Um, yep. So the things, and I'm going to share what I think about that. And I think you have your own ideas. Your thinking always amplifies my thinking. Um, so what's in it? If I were a corporate leader these days, what's in it for me? Um, 
there's learning that I take home with my family. I see my children going through things or my spouse going through things that, that um, I'm realizing I don't like what they're having to deal with in their workplaces or schools or whatever. And so I want to shift the culture. So I want to learn about how to do it at work. It's like work can be a laboratory for me. You know, if I'm realizing I myself, oh, wow, I have these uh, implicit biases they're not my fault. They're as a result of how I was socialized, the way I was brought up and so forth, you know, and I learned all this stuff. It's not like I wanted to become biased, but I did. And so just having that level of self-awareness and then thinking about how does that impact the people in my organization? Like, are there ways that I show up in social space that, um, that are, uh, that are, that are in some ways oppressive for other people who are not white, you know, again, going back to talk about race and color, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, needing to become aware of that. And if I really, really, really think of myself as a good person, in other words, an ethical person, a moral person, someone who cares about others, lives by the golden rule or the platinum rule, um, then I do have that intrinsic motivation. I I want to learn and become more self-aware. You know, self-awareness is is the first of the um, uh, emotional intelligence uh, skills, right? The first key element in emotional intelligence is self-awareness. So um, I think a lot of people, you know, and most people who, in my experience, my observation, most of the people we work with who've gotten into senior leadership positions, they're there because they have at least a modicum of, of emotional intelligence. And if they don't, they find out about it in our labs, not from us so much, but from their peers. Yeah. You know, their their peers will let them know, gee, you know, you just said that it didn't work for me. It landed in a way that I don't think you intended. I mean, people are having these this level of conversations and um, it it. I don't want to say that it, it creates um, intrinsic motivation, which is a force, of course, that impels someone to to learn or to do something different. Um, there's a way in which we create conditions uh, a container for learning that engages people uh, with each other in a way that the learning can occur and the mind sh- mindsets can shift and so forth. So I think I think that's the um, I think that's the key. I don't want to say the trick because it's not magic. You know, it feels like magic sometimes, but it's really just creating the right conditions and yeah. engaging people's intelligence and their heart centers. Yeah. You know, their heart centers. These the people we work with, my experience is they're like really, really good people. And they want to be good people and they mm-hmm. want to they want to do well and they want to do good. Yeah. And so there yeah. it's like it, we create the conditions and we engage them at that level that that then they impel themselves. We're not like beating them, you yeah. know. <laughs> I, I hear you saying, yeah, we don't, we don't, we want them to recognize or to have com- internal desire to learn when they are keeping somebody from flourishing mm-hmm. and with, with bias or whatever, but also, you know, what would help them, you know, support people flourishing even more and, mm-hmm. uh, and, the, you know, what unleashes the human spirit, what's on, un- what unwinds all of us from being more fully ourselves and resourcing where we are around. And, but what, what value already exists in us that supports equity and, and inclusion, you know, a lot of people do care about this country or care about 
um, you know, people having freedom um, yes. or mm-hmm. empowerment and, you know, that there's a lot of values latent to connected to all these that have been nurtured or growing people all along. Yes. How do we yeah. just encourage them to retap that purpose? Leverage those. And, and we have to, you and I and others who do the work that we do in those rooms, we have to um, be re- resources for those people so that they they know that they matter, you know? Right. I mean, it was part of the values, the original value set for white men uh, as full diversity partners was the um, acknowledgement and inclusion of uh, white men and their life and work experiences and what matters mm-hmm. to them. I mean, mm-hmm. rather than polarizing people from each other, that's one of the things I love about how we approach it um, so that everyone is seen as having value. And maybe they might say to themselves, gee, I need some remediation here. You know, I got an overdose of white culture or something. You know, mm. some sometimes people will get to yeah. that level of humor about yeah. it. Yep. And for me, I'm like, I, I want to know what it's like to be in a system or a place without patriarchy or supremacy or limits on synergy and mm-hmm. um, equity and um, full inclusion. And it's like, you know, that's an exciting place to hang out, to be, it's like, you know, for all of us to, to feel free to be ourselves and to create a world that, um, honors and recognizes all the gifts that everybody brings. Exactly. It's such a great vision in my opinion. I mean, I like it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and today, like a lot of polarizations happening in the world, there's a lot of even assumptions about what this work is about that are uh, biased or negative because it's about unleashing and creating a world where everybody can be themselves and not not just somehow assuming some people are bad or evil. But it's um, how do how can we create a a world where we all thrive, which is democracy, where we all get to um, be safe. Mm-hmm. feel respected have dignity feel flourish and um that's the future of the world at stake yeah it's uh it's so important to um to if if we could just start diminishing the polarizing forces that are going on uh by really seeing and listening to and understanding each other instead of just uh, having uh offloading a a big lump of projections on each other, yeah. but, but instead say to say to ourselves, what is this about for me? And that it really is at the heart of what a lot of people have been fearful of. Um, that's called critical race theory. You know, that all that really is about is looking at the water that we swim in, you know, first saying, Hey, you know, we're in a culture, there is a culture here and it's the water we swim in. So we don't even notice it or feel it. And we need to look at the water. That's really what critical race theory is about. You know, it's not, it's not like some boogeyman. Yeah. And it originally was uh, about looking at the laws from a legal mm-hmm. perspective in a college acronym, but you know um, yeah, that we all need to understand um, historically some of where we've come from current systems and how, how they operate and how can we create a space where we can all thrive and courage. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, 
I just came across an organization that, um, you know, helps. It's called Crossing the Difference Divide. There's a couple of people that created three assumptions. You know, let's be unusually interested in each other and stay in the room with difference and stop comparing my best to your worst. And they have these hour-long dialogues that I was part of one yesterday. And it was interesting to hear people, you know, be mostly shifting to inquiry and being hearing hearing the human humanness in each other and it does immediately drop you know projections and um simplistic you know stories uh negative stories of intent about each other are very simple and um the reality is all of us are very complex and so anytime mm-hmm. we share realness and who who we are what we're going through um it sort of destabilizes those simplistic narratives and the dehumanizing narratives. So um, there's a lot of opportunity for. Yes. For, yeah. Yes. So. It's, it's rich. Any last words you want to share as we come up on about 70 minutes of time, advice, mm-hmm. reflections, or mm-hmm. what you're most sorting out and all this yourself. Well, that, Something came to mind just now as I was listening to you. I was remembering a book that was written, I think, in the 1970s by a psychologist named Gerald Jampolsky. I think I have that right. And uh, it was about um, where do we come from? Uh, Do we come from love or do we come from fear? And I think if um, each of us could say to ourselves, when we notice a fear response coming up or an anger or blaming response about those other people, whoever they are, to just notice that in ourselves and say to ourselves, wow, what's that about? What am I really afraid of? And is there something here to be afraid of? Or or is it a story I'm making up? And maybe could I just uh, ask a question, you know, rather than just blaming or projecting? I, I think it could really help shift the um, polarizing dynamic that's going on so powerfully right now. Uh, it could help to shift it, um, the, like shift the energy field of that if more of us started to do that. And I have my own moments like that. I went through some last week in this group I was in, had my own fear response to something. And so I can say to myself, um, how do I want to be with these people? How do I want to come across? What kind of experience do I want to have? Do I want to remain um, located in my fear or be organized by my fear? Or uh, can I in some way choose love? Yeah. What does that look like? How does that shift for you to love? Well, if I can manage to do it before I have an outburst, you know, I before (laughs) I get triggered or whatever. um, Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's like saying to myself, wait a minute, I know these people or I know someone like them mm. and um, they're a very complex person. And, and I ask myself the question, what am I afraid of right now? And am I really at risk? You know, yeah. am I, am I unsafe? Am I about to be unsafe? And yeah. the answer, you know, always really in recent experiences I'm, I'm safe. I'm just like very uncomfortable and I don't like what I'm hearing or seeing, but can I be, can I say to myself, what's that about for that person mm. and be a little bit other oriented? Yeah. Um, I also, I go to the metaphysical, Michael, I don't know if you do this, but I go to the metaphysical level 
and um, ask for guidance from essentially from like a higher power. You know, what would be the best thing for me to do right here and now? Maybe it's just breathe, breathe, you know, or say I need a break. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, John Powell, who's a a academic oriented at UC Berkeley, used to be part of the Kirwan Institute, bias, anti-bias institute in Ohio. Um, He says, you know, people trust fear and anger more than they trust love. and that we have to learn to trust love more and that the media um, leans us towards precipitates us to be motivated by fear um, and anger. And so love is, yeah. Remember Mark Chesler in my dissertation research said the only way to touch other white men is through love. Hmm. He actually was talking about the Jewish definition of love to him, which I found out a few years later meant challenge, not just unconditional support. Right. You know that not, not the not the warm and fuzzy version, or only the warm and fuzzy, right? But the but the challenge. Yeah the the love yeah. the loving um, uh, yeah holding each other and and challenging each other from that place of compassion. Yep, and um, versus versus yeah. blame and judgment. Yeah. What right. I know about blame and judgment is that they they damage and um, and sometimes sever relationship, and they certainly damage trust. Yep. So to go back to my example from earlier, you know, if, if the leader is saying to me and I'm having an outsider experience, you know, I just, you just need to trust me. Um, I'm going to resist that and say, you don't get to tell me what I need. You yeah. know? Yep. Um, I'm the boss of me kind of thing. <laughs> right. Well, we're coming up on an um, hour and 15 minutes nonstop of connecting. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and, share yourself and the journey book and the continuum and kind of what you've been up to some of your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you so much, so much, Michael. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I I hope there's some way in which this is helpful to someone out there who might come across it. (laughs) So yeah, Yeah. thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit WMFDP.com slash podcast.